We are going back to school today to revise some basic principles. Welcome to episode 134 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. I've been doing some digging, some archaeology, and this is a show that I did over a year ago with Bennett Hunter, the lovely Bennett Hunter of Canadian Libertarian Podcast. Hey everyone, this is the Canadian Libertarian. Uh, today we're joined with Anthony Samarov, a fellow Liberty lover, lover out of Scotland. We're going to be talking about economics and of course Adam Smith, a Scottish economist. So I think, I think we're in good hands as far as giving us some perspective. You're going to have a Canadian's perspective that's, you know, lives north of our neighbors to the south, Americans. So you got the full on republic rebellious nature of those Americans, right? <laughs> They're railed against the kings and queens of uh, old world uh, Europe. And then you got the Canadians that kind of played that uh, little bit of a middle ground, kind of in some way tried to be loyalist to a certain degree. <laughs> and, and But yet we have for hundreds of years now seen what uh, pure free market capitalism, well, not so much anymore, but what that entails and what the philosophy of the American experience is all about. And then once again, we go back to Europe and places like Scotland and, you know, even Great Britain. As far as, you know, 800 years of precedent of how you get from old world philosophies to trying to understand economics and social habits and behaviors instinctively and what freedom truly entails and what individual freedom truly means so the only it, real kind of freedom exactly everything else is uh, yes um it's just a, another form of forced subjugation so as soon as you're a your identifier is a group well it's uh, yeah you're a, just a sacrificial lamb at that point um anyways anthony if you want to say anything about yourself uh introduce yourself let the people know what uh, what the topic we're going to be discussing and where exactly how do you do you want to start this Thank you. Well, I'm Anthony Samroff. Some of you might know me from the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Others may not, but now you certainly know that the Scottish Liberty Podcast exists, and I, I hope that you will enjoy me on uh, Bennett's show. I also host the Be Yourself and Love It podcast, which is slightly uh, different. It's on personal development topics, on the internal liberty, how much we get in our own ways. Uh, so um, in every sphere I'm interested in human enrichment the, through the political economic sphere, through libertarianism and through the uh, personal internal sphere, through um, personal development, self-help, um, self-inquiry and um, so I, I even wrote a book on overcoming procrastination which you can get at beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash do it. But today we're here to talk about economics, about the difference between public and private, and why should it be that private companies are more efficient than the government? Is there any reason for that? Is that just a right-wing talking point? Is that just something that's said? Or are there good reasons to believe that the, the public sphere will always be wasteful and tardy and way behind the private sector. Oh, exactly. And for me, well, when we start this topic, the most fundamental aspect of private versus public comes down to incentives, right? And as far as incentives goes, in a private market type of setting, your incentive, if you're someone that uh, is looking to start a business, or offer a product or a service to other people, you know, well, even people that haven't started a business, when you frequented that business, you know that the employer, the business owner, the entrepreneur, they have to, in order to entice you to use their services or to buy their products, you have to look at price points, quality, quantity, um, whether they're going to stand behind their products and service and ultimately are they done is that interaction is that exchange not just voluntarily but comes across as a win-win situation so we've all heard that we so we've all heard the classic example of 
I got a pen, you got a dollar, you get the pen, I get the dollar. We both walk away from that exchange. It was done voluntarily. There was no coercion involved. And we both walk away from that exchange feeling like we were rewarded. We feel like I was more than willing to give up that dollar because, man, I really need that pen because maybe I'm a writer. Right? <laughs> you know that, And that pen could translate. If you're a writer, that pen, you know, even though it seemed cheap to buy at the time, could be very productive. On the other hand of that, the contrast to that are those products and service that happen as a result, as a consequence of force, of coercion, which is literally the definition of government. I mean, there's, I try to tell this people all the time. Forget about, I hear people say, they say, well, what's your definition? I'm sorry. When people say, what's your definition? It's like, I'm sorry, but you don't get to define words and terms. You know, the fact that we use human language and in this particular venture, it's English. And if you use the language of English, then you don't get to just make it up as you go along. You actually have to accept the fact that there are predefined meanings for the words. Actually, actually how me and Anthony can have a conversation is because we understand that there are actual meanings to the words that we use. And government, the very meaning, the very definition of government is rule, as in to impose, use mandates and edicts instead of voluntary exchange. At any interaction, whether it's social or economic, although we're dealing with economics today, if it's done by way of force or coercion, I mean, some people can make an argument that, yes, you, hey, look, we can make things happen by using force. Perfect example, if I was uh, reckless on the weekend and squandered my paycheck and I couldn't pay my rent next week, well, hey, if I went out and robbed the bank, I could make an excuse that, hey, look, at, hey, it helped keep me with a roof over my head and I wasn't homeless the next week. But the other underlying aspect of that that very few people in government want to talk about is what happened as far as the incentive. Now the incentive is that I shouldn't be personally responsible and personally accountable. Now I can just, why should I? I can just steal from someone else to compensate and make up for the difference. Go ahead, Anthony. When other people see that you benefit from that, they might copy your unwholesome behavior. So you mentioned a really important point, which is the voluntary versus non-voluntary. Of course, as entrepreneurs, we submit to the wills of our customers. If you don't provide a product or service, um, people can go elsewhere. And that is something that the government is not necessarily good at adapting to because um, it takes a long time to make change in public institutions. You need to go through to the public and get a majority and then you need to vote for a representative or you need to lobby. Whereas on the market, you can just go and, if you don't like one service, you can go and buy another service that is similar but slightly different. I can go to Costa, you can go to Starbucks, he can go to that coffee shop down the road. And the, the interesting thing is, in that respect, one major advantage that the market has over the public sector is the market allows several different um, solutions to be tried at once. So we have a problem where we want to play music for example and um, we don't have any instruments. The market provides us a whole range of different instruments and different types of each instrument at a different price, uh, a different quality of instrument. If you're very ex um, a very experienced guitarist, you can get a Gibson for two or three grand or more than that. If you're a noob, you can go to a second-hand store and get a cheap guitar for 20, 30 bucks. Um, in the, in the, so that allows different solutions to be tested simultaneously. When it comes to technological solutions, companies can look at what their competitors uh, do and say, well, we're doing this, let's say it's an app. We're doing very well this way, but they're better than us that way. So our next product is going to combine the best of what they're doing with the best of what we're doing. Whereas you don't really get that trail and error in the public sector because whether you like it or not, you've bought it. As you say, it's not voluntary. And what sometimes wonders to me, like I think, how much, how brainwashed do people have to be to not... Um, be able to readily comprehend the fact that if you are forced to pay for a service, whether you like it or not, it's not 
likely to be that good a service. Plus, add to that the fact that in many spheres, the government bans other organizations from for competing with it. So there's limits on the private security that you can use, or education is very, very highly regulated by the government, even when it's private. Same goes for healthcare. So not only does can the public institution not compare itself to how other people are solving the problem in the same way that the app designer can, can benefit from its competitors, from its competitors innovations. The public sector bans innovations in the private sector and that really, that incentive structure as you say, um, is just on a purely rational basis going to lead to poor outcomes. Yeah, I agree. And actually, while you were saying that, I was just thinking of a, a classic example that I think no matter where you live geographically, I think everyone can understand this intrinsically, is uh, here's an example, insurance. Now, before there was government mandated insurance, when insurance is basically, if you think about it as a concept, it's just everybody degrees to put a pile of money into a pool everyone acknowledges and realizes that not everyone's going to use that pile of money in that pool but there's a underlying pretense of a safety net so that those who do need it well it's there and it's and it's a a method to provide for the times when you have an accident well I'll, I'll use auto insurance right now as an example so if you have an accident you know if everyone has paid into a pool of money into something we call insurance then the people that have had the unfortunate situation where you know they get into an accident and it was very expensive well that pool of money is going to go as a means to pay out and provide for that and it's entered into under voluntary contract now here in canada but i'm sure it's the same way everywhere is once government mandates insurance well if you've ever had an accident or a ding or someone maybe knocked your you know you're at the mall and they put a big ding in the side of your door and you've gone the insurance or maybe someone rear-ended you and crumpled up your bumper I'm sure most people out there will understand now and have heard this probably themselves or a story that someone else has told them is the insurance companies now because government mandates it which means that it's now like I say the big gigantic gun in the room so there's force now there now there's no way to hold any individual actor to account or personally responsible or to hold them to a particular contract if you go into and I've had it happen to myself so I'm using my own personal anecdote experience but like I said I'm sure you've heard this before you go to insurance or, or you've had an accident let's say you like I say you crunk, crumpled your bumper someone ran to the back of you you can go now to any shop and most of them will say, okay, are you paying this out of pocket or are you going through insurance? And as soon as the second follow-up to the fact when they ask you that question, it'll be if you're going through insurance, all of a sudden that price is much higher <laughs> than if you were going to pay for that with cash. And the reason for that is if, if there's a methodology where you can just plunder that pool of, of in, income, right, just... Just based on sheer fact that hey, can I? You have to anyways, and there's a big pot there, so I'm just going to plunder it. Well, how can you hold them to account? You can't because it's a government mandated setup system. Whereas, whereas that that shop owner, if you walked in just straight up cash or the contract, it was written into your contract that you agreed to voluntarily. They would they wouldn't be able to do that because the actual the rest of the people without government mandate would be saying hey wait a minute no 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 that bu that bumper only costs five hundred bucks <laughs> well let's say retails for five hundred bucks right exactly exactly there would be automatic retaliatory forces and I I had the most uh, horrendous example of that from a friend of mine who is a manager in a pizza hut here in um, Scotland and the government mandated that every no no it wasn't the government that mandated because it was mandatory for them to insure their drivers their motorbike motorbike drivers every shift a security check had to be performed on the motorbike so like four times a day or or something or five times a day they had to check every single motorbike um to make sure it was roadworthy i mean the amount of time that that took and the manager had to check, they had to fill out a form every time with check boxes. Yes, I've checked this. Yes, I've checked that. The amount, the labor cost of complying with that regulation was huge. 
I mean, huge. But the insurance company had no reason not to do it because um, the insurance was mandatory. So they want to keep their payout costs down. So they might as well just say, yeah, you've got to check the bike every shift. I mean, come on. You yeah. know, one once once a week might have been quite sufficient. Or you just say, well, look, if you, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what would have been sufficient, but I do know that the market knows. And uh, that's just an example of the perverse incentives, as you said, that, that government creates. And that's not even public. That's public-private partnership. Mm. Um, so sometimes you get, with public-private partnership, you get the worst of both worlds rather than the best of both worlds. So... Um, this is like one of the things, lowering cost of delivery is not a stake when you've got the government involved because the money is drawn coercively through the tax system. You're, you're not paying out of pocket as a consumer. When I'm a consumer, I want the best product at the best price. So the market, by its very nature, puts an upward pressure on quality and a downward pressure on on price and we see that in our smartphones and our laptops but that doesn't exist which is why you know education and healthcare so gov much government involvement especially in my country and your country they seem to be getting worse we're headed for five million on NHS well waiting list on national health service waiting lists um, in 2019 and that's in a country of 65 million you know that uh, people die here waiting and uh, waiting for um, cancer treatment or for, or thing or heart treatment for things that are really routine in America. Not that I'm a big fan of the American system, but um, uh, the access to care is easier. So I'm reminded of you know a quote for from Milton Friedman where I'm going to paraphrase where he said there's four four types of spending money. One is I spend my money on me in which case I care about the quality and the price. One is I spend my money on you, in which case I care about the price, but not so much the quality. Another is I spend someone else's money on me, in which case I want the best quality, but I'm not too bothered about the price. And then there's, of course, I spend your, mo your money on someone else, in which case I'm not too bothered about the quality or the price because it's not my money. And whatever way you cut it, public institutions are forever fated to be spending other people's money on other people so they don't have skin in the game as a consumer I've got skin in the game as an entrepreneur I want to keep my costs down so that I can shift more units and I won't be outcompeted by someone who's more practical than I am so um, so this is one of the reasons why markets are more efficient. They allow many t solutions to be tested simultaneously and the best ones win out over time. They've got that incentive to keep costs down and quality up to compete for customers. And um, yeah, they're, they're, and they, they, they have skin in the game. They have skin in the game. You know, it's my money at work. Yeah. Well, I just want to follow that up with actually, that's perfect. It's great. I'm glad you brought all that into the conversation because what I always, um, and maybe I haven't articulated this as much in the past videos, but I'm going to now, is all these things that governments look to mandate or implement and, and pick winners and losers in the economy. What I want to point out right here now, so whether it's, you know, how doctors perform surgery, all the instruments you use, the efficiencies, seat belts, another thing, seat belts, helmets, all these things that have been created and designed to help people that actually truly help people, truly, right? They all, this, this to me, the perfect example is, well, they're, they're trying to put the cart before the horse when you're talking about government because that the sheer fact there's such thing as helmets. So when the government says we're going to mandate or we're going to legislate that you have to wear a helmet or you have to wear a seatbelt, basically they're admitting, although most people don't understand this because they haven't had it taught to them properly, is the fact that seatbelts and helmets exist tell you that the market, the market has already solved the problem, Right. The government trying, yeah, to, trying to, to... to the degree that it can be. To the degree that it can be because we don't live in utopia. Right, right. Exactly. Well, exactly. And you know what? Because of, because of you know, the, the human mind and entrepreneurial zeal, there might be other methods. I mean, look at today. People are always concerned about drinking and driving. Well, <laughs> Uber, uh, Lyft, um, automation. There's going to be a, a, um, a myriad of ways. Go ahead. Hey. We're told we need the government to protect our property. Did the government... Um, 
invent alarm systems? No. Did the government invent locks? Did the government invent a microchip you can put it in your car so that it can track your car or your phone no. if it gets stolen? No, that all came out of the private sector. And another point that I should mention on public versus private is if a private company go uh, performs poorly, they can't go to the their fund well they might be able to go to their their shareholders and say we don't have enough money but they'll have to demonstrate that um when a public institution when a public department performs badly they can always say and they usually do say um we just didn't have enough money to solve the problem so they can actually get rewarded with more funds from performing badly. Just the other day I was listening to a podcast with someone whose experience in the military was part of what drove them to be a libertarian and he was told that they were once basically told to get rid of a bunch of bombs, to basically launch them. I don't know if they were bombs or missiles. They cost $800,000 a piece for that exact justification because if they got rid of everything then they could be assured a better budget next time. Whereas if they still had stuff left over they might face budget cuts. Yeah. Similarly my mother reported when she was in the Israeli army which was mandatory, still is, when she was growing up, you know, she would be very, very careful with the pocket money they gave her and write less. And everyone would say, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? You have to spend it quickly so we can go and say we're not giving enough money. They give us more pocket money next month. That just does not fly in the private sector. It can only happen in the public sector uh, because, um, you're, you know, you're, you're accountable. If you mess up, you lose out. There, it's an ecosystem. It's like the rainforest. You know, one tree goes down and it gets cannibalized by insects, and, and it's not. It's not like and that. But nothing is wasted in that ecosystem. This is another thing that's really important. I should say this before. Uh, before I'm sorry I, I, to grandstand Bennett, but that's you got good. me on a roll. Like <laughs> uh, one of the things is that system of trying many solutions out at once stops wastefulness because if the government has a plan then if it messes up they've just wasted a bunch of resources on something that doesn't work what happens in the free market is I've got this um, product let's call it a purple widget right and People really love purple widgets, but then someone else comes and uh, creates a, a pink widget, and uh, and I have a, a good idea, which is like, well, maybe if I people like the pink one, but they like the pur purple one, maybe I can make a red one, and now the red one's all the range, but co rage, but constantly, uh, different companies competing keeps on allocating resources to those companies that are meeting their customers' needs. Now, if the red widget's the most successful widget, the company producing that gets more profits, which means they can invest in their company to make even more red widgets so, so they can reach more people. That means the, the product gets tested on a small scale and the more people buy it, the more it grows. But if people stop buying it, it shrinks again. There is no comparable mechanism to that in the public sector because someone needs to come up with an idea and then put it into law and then force it on absolutely everyone. And this is why the Nobel Prize winning economist Hayek, he explained that no one has the information to centrally plan an economy because that information is distributed throughout everyone. You know, he was inspired by Ludwig von Mises' um, work on the socialist calculation problem, which people can look up if they want to know, know more about that. There's some good presentations on it by people like Joe Salerno. Um, he, he said... People have are not like, uh, both of them said this, you know, people are not like a metal that's got a certain boiling point and conductivity and they're all exactly the same. People have values, they have different types, different amounts of information, they change their mind, they, they like different things, they have different preferences, they're not deterministic like natural phenomena are. So because there's millions of us, there's billions of us in an economy, when well, the worldwide economy, but in a, a given economy there's millions of us, 
all of these things, our values, our information, they're changing all the time. So it's so no one has the information to account for everyone's preferences or needs because those are constantly changing. Because they're distributed throughout everyone, it's the combined uh, movements of the market that give entrepreneurs the information of what they should pr be producing more of and what they should be producing less of. And I, I believe that you will have a lot to say on that matter. <laughs> well, I was just just to follow that up right there. I was just thinking you're you're referencing Hayek and others, and it's like I'm thinking being a, a Scotsman, <laughs> Adam Adam Smith, the Invisible Hand, like you say, it's it's a it's a beautiful representation of the fact that yes, you can't centrally plan and manipulate the lives of millions of people because yeah, we're not the Borg, we're not robots, we're not we're not all seamlessly thinking the same thing at the same time. And that's another thing every day on an ongoing basis. But what you were saying about the even the efficiencies and stuff, I thought of two examples. Salt, here in here in Canada, we got a lot of snow, as you're probably aware of. And and I had a couple buddies uh, when I was a truck driver. I was a long-haul truck driver. And, and one of my friends, uh, he worked for the government, right? He, he was uh, the guy that drove the, the truck that goes around plowing the, the city streets and the roads and the secondary highways. And I remember them. They would sit around most of the time playing cards on the public sector dime, mind you, being rewarded, being rewarded and compensated much more than a typical truck driver, uh, a straight truck driver would be. But I mean, just that's besides the fact, but they would even suggest that they would go even on days when, even if it was a half a, a centimeter of snow, well, maybe not half centimeter, but a couple centimeters of snow that would probably have melted off really quick. Wouldn't have been a big issue. It was a warm day. Not a big deal, but they would go out and salt the crap out of those roads buses just by sheer fact that if not, oh, like you're saying, the budget, oh, next year they might suggest we might have to shrink that budget. And to keep the budget, you know, to keep this bureaucracy and all this wasteful spending going, well, hey, if we don't go dump a buttload of salt on the road, <laughs> then we're not going to keep the budgets up. But once again, that's just pure waste because there were people in the private sector that went through a lot of work mining and, and extracting all that salt that they're using. But another another example of that, and being a truck driver and being someone that's predominantly from the blue-collar background, another classic example, and I love when people talk about roads because I'm the kind of person, not only did I drive the dump trucks that deliver the asphalt, but I've been the guy that sat on the, the paver or the guy that run the milling machine that t digs up the old asphalt to get ready to lay down the new asphalt. And let me tell you, there's no government people. Let me just tell you this first and foremost. There's no no one from the government out there paving your roads, folks. Okay, so just let just get that shit out of your mind right right now. There's just regular people for the most part, and most of it is done by the private sector. Now, here's the thing that I want to point out the difference, though. Those of us in the private sector, because we have to function function under market fundamentals. Uh, a typical truck driver in New Brunswick, so it's a, a much lower paid jurisdiction in Canada than you would in, like, say, Ontario or Quebec or British Columbia or Alberta. A typical uh, straight truck, dump truck driver would work and make roughly, or even just someone that does the, uh, the, the, the shoveling or, the, or just the uh, patchwork or the actual paving themselves. The average pay for most of those people would be $16 or $17 an hour. Now, those are the people that actually do pave and create the roads they've got the engineers they've got all the people that have come up and figured out how this happens how it's going to be done now there are people that work for the city so these, these are the government employees like perfect example in new brunswick the city of fredericton and we all hung out together we all snowmobiled we all rode our atvs together and you would hear the guys that work for the so they would be driving another same kind of concept where they're driving a straight dump truck and they didn't build roads. None of them built the roads, but they would come along and do some patchwork. These people that are riding around in the same kind of equipment, actually less experienced for the most part because they just don't have that real world experience. They've just been taught that you just got to patch. Whereas if the people that build the road, they have a much better and intrinsic understanding of, of the road rather than someone that just comes along patches. But they would be making, doing basically the same job, actually I would say at a, at a lower level, $24 an hour. So here, the, the guys that's doing all the work, that's providing all that productive wealth, all that productive income, because that's that's the capitalism. And But that's the thing. As you know, we all function basically in the third way where the government takes all that productive wealth, but they're rewarding their own employees. They're the, the public sector, which once again, once you tie in the unions, because then you've got another layer of bureaucracy where you're not even getting, if it, 
was reliant on the governments. If they just used governments to and, and people employed by the government, well, those roads would cost three, four, maybe five, ten times as much. But this three Ps, the public-private partnership thing, is their way, what it is, these central planners, they've figured out a way to take full advantage of the productive people in society and use them to their means, but they recognize that I'm going to put these... These I'm going to place these burdens upon you, which is called government and taxation and forced subjugation. But they've recognized for many, many years that you can only keep piling on the burden so long. That's, that's the thing with this third way. The socialists have figured out, well, we can plunder the capitalists because they're so productive, they're so efficient, they're, they're so ambitious. We can be a monkey on their back as long as we don't gain too much weight but what we're seeing is that's even in the government mind even that central planning model that never works because you've already destroyed the incentive in the beginning because you're basically you you're just going to keep gaining weight because hey i can and they seem to be willing to keep assuming and tackling on that burden but what it is is the people in the private sector they know that they have to work to provide for their family their for their livelihood so they're going of course they're going to continue working but well i think can i think a lot of western countries other than the fact that they have this uh, fiat currencies where they can just print their way to the trouble i think people have already i think atlas has already shugged i think 2008 was a perfect example of Atlas. The private sector shrugged. The, the private sector shrugged and said, "You know what? That's it. We're not going to assume this burden and carrying all this weight all on our own while we have all these parasites." But you know what? Now with fiat currencies, well, they can paint over in mass. They've got that never-ending credit card where it's future and and future and successive generations at this point. Because when people talk about paying off debt. Yeah, well, when people talk about paying off the debts in Canada, and a uh, perfect example of the province I'm in right now, Ontario, the most indebted sub-sovereign in the entire planet, folks, like to the tune of double of what California is in debt. And California has a population equal to or maybe in excess of the entire country of Canada. But like I say, if you've got a never-ending credit card where you have lost that morality and you will f enslave future and successive generations under the pretense, oh, maybe they'll be so prosperous that they won't mind. Once again, goes back to incentive, right? Well, I mean, people are checking out, you know, there are video games, pornography. It's like people don't see a future for themselves, uh, many young people, and the, they, they are not afforded skill. I mean, what could be more of a good example of the failure of the public sector than the public sector schools? You have people coming out of 11 to 13 years of mandatory education without enough skills to get a minimum wage job. I mean, 11 to 13 years is long enough to train as a surgeon or a concert pianist. I'm not saying that you want to start people training as a surgeon at five. But the point is, why should anyone be coming out of 11 to 13 years without learning one skill that will fetch them 15, 20 bucks an hour. You're wasting people's lives. I'm not saying that the only thing they need to do is learn a vocational skill, but wouldn't it help a little bit? And the great, um, on a free market, of course, this is coming back to the purple widget, the pink widget, the red widget, and the blue widget, you know? On a, on a free market, there would be so many different kinds of skills that over time, the best practices would emerge. What is the best way to teach people? No one knows that. No central planner knows that. There's some research that might say, well, this is good and that is good, but how do you combine those things? The only way to discover is to have tens of thousands of schools trying different things, learning about how people learn, and then sharing that information, copying the best practices from each other and combining it with the methods that they've learned, training their own teachers, training world-class teachers, the likes of which have never been seen before. And this is where we get into problems with socialists because, or even um, people on the right who have certain collectivist tendencies and think certain things should be planned in the economy, which is they come to us as libertarians and say, well, what's your solution for education? And they say, I don't know, you need to try things out. You need a million skills to try things out. And they go, oh, that sounds quite risky. What if people don't uh, indoctrinate their kids in their religion? And what if they do this? It's like the, everyone's already falling through the 
cracks. They say that libertarians don't have any solid plans. Oh, you just want the, the market to decide that's not a solid plan. Well, you can make a solid plan if you want to centrally plan the economy. But to us, that's the scary thing. You're autocratic. Oh, I know how to fix the education system. Really? You know better than the combined efforts of millions of people trying things out and finding what works and what doesn't work. We as libertarians do not want solid plans. We despise solid plans. We like, or at least written on the scale of a whole society, we're all for people trying out their own plans and discovering how successful they are and comparing them to other people's plans. And the more successful those plans are, the more widely they'll get adopted, but piecemeal, in a voluntary way, not shoved down people's throats at the point of a gun. And that is what we really, really fear as libertarians. And what we have to offer the world is the real solution to problems, which is the combined genius of humanity. Right. Working like a working like a sieve to sieve out bad solutions and um, seven good solutions and combine those good solutions into better solutions. Right, and you know what? As far as and this this is gonna kind of I'm gonna 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 win to a, a Keynesian a Keynesian thing here now because you know even though Maynard Keynes you know I could kind of respect the man couple different areas a couple different ways he was a smart guy but here here's the the overlying thing to make it as simple as possible what I I uh, I loathe about Keynes and economics is is well the 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 complete avoidance the risk aversion so Keynes in economics just like the the crash of 2008 most people understand like or even if you go back to World War II and all this stuff like where he says the government steps in to stimulate the economy so that you don't have these economic crashes but what people don't understand and if you're a parent you should understand is those whether you call them an economic crash or your kids have to go through you know learning hard truths is with if, if you remove that once again it goes ties into the incentive too if you remove it in in your family or in a societal setting where you know it is terrible nobody wants to see people go through hard times but it has to happen as a means as a measure to correct bad habits and behaviors the minute the minute you try to paint over it which is basically what the you know all this economic stimulus is that and I'm, i i i hate i hate the fact when they use these goddamn words too like stimulus what it, it sounds it sounds so good it's like oh doesn't that oh i'm stimulated oh it's, it sounds so great but but let me let me just finish my thought there okay so so if you think about it so yeah you're stimulus but like uh peter schiff is a guy he's a uh, free market guy out of the U.S. He, I love how he explains it when he talks about putting the the needle in the arm. Sure, you know if you're going through a rough time in your life, socially or personally, if you stick a, a drug like a, you know, I don't know, ecstasy, a needle in your arm, and just yeah, you can avoid that, right? You can you can avoid feeling that pain, but that means you're going to be constantly and forever relying on a drug in your arm. So. You're you're no longer functioning as as a as a free human being that's thinking and doing on your own. You're now just relying on a constant right this this influx of all this this false stimulus that's never given you the capacity to learn or correct bad habits or behaviors. You know, at the the 2008 crash, what really should have happened, and I mean, I feel bad for the people that got themselves in these situations. You know, there was millions in the U.S. and in Canada. Trust me, it's coming here too because, oh my God, the housing market. And like I say, well, this constant pumping up the economy and and extending and pretending, like it's it's going to come to a head at some point. But without that corrective thing that should have happened in 2008. It's hard. It's like with my kids. If I've had to correct their habits, it's like, yes, they've had to suffer a little bit. But you know what? Suffering is not a terrible thing if it's not imposed as a means just, you know, through malice. If you're maliciously causing harm to someone, but if it's a means that they did something wrong, if it's a means to correct their behavior, that is a great thing. But these, like I say, Keynesians, because, of, hey, wait a minute. Why would we do that when we've got a never-ending credit card? But what they keep leaving out of the equation, and this is the thing that bothers me when I hear mainstream media or Keynesian economists, when they talk about this stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, we saved the economy. Yes, but now you look at look at it. Now all these institutions, these crony corporates, now they've actually, they, they don't even feel any, like there's such thing as a moral hazard. There's no moral hazard anymore, so they just keep doubling down on their bad habits and... 
Yeah, and they keep doubling down on their bad habits and behaviors. So now, th because there was no corrective measures, now the next time, it's going to be even worse. And the further you push that out into the future, now you're causing that pain and that anguish to be suffered by people that had nothing to do with it. If you're going to cause pain and suffering, at least let the people that caused this shit, at least let them be the one that have to suffer the pain. Like, think about savers. The people that care about, you know, even though they're constantly being being stolen from by that death by a thousand cuts through inflation they're trying they're trying desperately to try to avoid that and the government now well i mean in japan there for a while they in the they even went down to negative interest rates so they're not just not rewarding good habits they're punishing good habits you know people that are trying to save for the future and then they say oh well now we're going to have step up and increase more like in canada the cpp the the canada's pension plan now we're not going to need higher contributions of that well no if you weren't stealing from people and inflating the the currency to the point where their uh value is is being reduced that that little bit they're trying to save to store as a value for their future use it's being depreciated by no means other than fiat, by fiat, by government, by central planning, by printing it, printing that money. But you'll never hear this stuff ever discussed and talked about, which is why it really pisses me off. It's because there's so many people in Canada, the UK, and US that don't understand these fundamentals, and it's because they're being denied, they're being denied the proper information by people that benefit from that never-ending extended credit card. That's right. And there's people like you and I who are essentially <laughs> obsessive hobbyists that understand this in and out. Compared to the general public, we're experts. But when do we get invited on the radio or the mainstream media to talk about it? Even you know, Peter Schiff rarely gets media appearances considering his level of expertise. So what you were saying reminded me of three things. First of all, of course, it's a good thing when you put your hand on the stove that it feels hot because if it didn't, um, you might not have a hand for very long. Mm. So that's your point on pain. Second thing is that um, regarding economic stimulus, if the government really had a magic button that could make the economy run smoothly and go well, wouldn't they have pressed it already? <laughs> Why would they wait? Why would they wait until there was an economic crisis to press it? They just keep on pressing it over and over and over again, constantly. Because the party that pressed it the most is the one that would get elected. So it's ridiculous to think that there's this special tool that apply that appears only when things get bad. And finally, yeah, I think it's important to understand exactly what you say, which is by, econo by stimulating the economy, you make it look like there's more wealth lying around than it is. So supposing this car factory is going to go out of business, but you stimulate the economy. So a few more people go out and buy cars and they're like, oh great, we're doing well now, we can stay in business. Those people are buying cars on the presumption that there's more money around the economy than there actually is. When the reality sets in that a whole bunch of people have bought cars prematurely, car sales will suffer for another 5, 10, 15 years rather than just, so maybe two or three or four car companies will have to shut down all at once. And all of these uh, auto workers will all be looking for jobs at the same time. And, and, uh, and what are their skills transferable to? So I just use that as one example that I like to use to illustrate why um, stimulus is bad. But just take that example of trying to save a car manufacturing company and apply it to every single business that's doing badly in the economy. It would be better if they started going out of business now, one by one, drip, drip, drip. So as they go out of business, the people who are let off can find a job somewhere else. Otherwise, what you're setting up the whole economy for is another crash where everyone loses their job all at once and how are they going to find new work and this is what people really really need to understand about the stimulus you know Bennett's example about um, putting drugs in your arm is really not uh, trivial what it means is you know here the dog having having some more booze when you've got a hangover all that it means is the day after your hangover will be even worse than it would be today you know if you don't take out the trash this week you'll have twice as much trash in your apartment next week yeah and you know what? Uh, I actually recorded it and 
and uh, downloaded and saved it for future reference. But our very own, I actually think uh, we did the swap, the exchange with uh, the UK there. We got Polaz, you got Carney there. <laughs> but Polaz, the banker for the, the Bank of Canada, the central banker, he even admitted he did an interview with, uh, was it Peter Armstrong from, I think it was the CBC, and I was surprised to hear him do it because, but, you know, this is the thing that happens. This is usually a one-off thing. Most people aren't paying attention. It might be done on a Friday. So most people, uh, you know, short-term attention span don't realize. But he said something. It was just one or two sentences within that, I think it was about a 20-minute conversation. But it was so important. He basically admitted that by the central banks, you know, putting these, implementing these rock bottom, like basically zero percent interest rates are just above zero percent they they admitted by stimulating the economy basically forcing the, or not forcing but enticing like the kids in the candy store here come on have come on come on here there's all kinds of candy take it right come on take it it's yours come on he admitted that that is a direct cause and has a direct correlation with the housing market in canada so and I see this as being the demographic things is causing a lot of hardships for a lot of people because people like my parents' generation from the boomers, they're benefiting tremendously from this because a lot of these people that bought their houses, like if you bought your house in Toronto in the 70s and 80s, wow, you buy a house for 50, 60, 70 grand. And now today it's turned into a pot of gold where you can sell it to your millennial kids or grandkids at like five or six hundred. Sure, you're benefited from that, but you're basically, um, as a result of that false stimulus, you have now your own children, your own offspring. I guess that social construct, that social contract, that even the pretense is completely null and void at this point because you're basically um, trying to mask over the bad acts, the bad malinvestments and the deeds from the central planner by using your house this speculative wealth that you've built up in your house that now all of a sudden it's turned into this pot of gold but you're imposing that on your successive generations and they have not benefited, and they're the ones that have not benefited from all this stimulus so there's like that double side of the coin effect that you're benefiting but you're also causing a lot of pain because if a if that kid now if that kid now has to pay 5 or 600,000 dollars for a house that you paid 50 or 60,000 for so 10 times more of that um, even even through that you know the bullshit uh, central plan economics where they might be making more money but they are actually because that inflation continues on it's it's it seems to be a never ending process so they're it's always going to be that death by a thousand cut, they're gonna be chasing their tail forever and ever and ever, and they're never gonna be able to catch up because that house, and I see, like that's another thing too with me being, in addition to a truck driver, the other aspect of my trades is, I've been in new home construction and stuff, and I see, that's the other thing I see too, is these homes, people don't even understand anymore intrinsic value because most of the products that are used in these new homes, these new developments, are basically what used to be in the old days uh, would have been used what I know this terminology if you're not in the field you might not understand but hog fuel or these value-added products like chips and and now I'm, I'm completely on board with the fact that we can use some of these things that would have just went to the garbage or been disposed of of using them now to me that's a great idea but to make those things the efficiencies that the market produced where we can instead of having to use pure raw wood now we can use these value-added products and services that should have made it cheaper that was actually the whole that was the original intention of using like MDF and particle board and wafer board and aspenite was to create an area of the economy where people that had less money could have a home build uh, use these materials for other other reasons without f having to pay these ridiculous sky high amounts of like a having to chop down you know a thousand big redwoods for your big hardwoods. No, they they did that, and the market said, okay, I'm going to give you uh, the ability if you're on the lower end of the pay scale where you can benefit from this. The government now though be, have have destroyed all that because now these houses that are built with these value added products and and, and recycled materials actually cost more than if you were to buy a house that was built with real solid hardwoods and softwoods that are fully intact and not you know glued together right so given the advances in technology just like um with smartphones or uh, computers you'd be expecting the price of to come down 
like the same way that everything goes down in price in the private sector. Instead, it's gone up. And, I mean, I can say the figure here is in the UK between 1971 and 2011, house prices rose by two, sorry, 4,255%. So what people were paying 40 times as much for a house. Mm. Could you imagine that a house was only a quarter what it costs now? Yeah. Wouldn't that mean... Wouldn't that mean everyone was so much richer? So you talked about the, the possibility of a coming financial collapse where the chickens come home to roost and the bad economic policies of kicking the can forward come back to bite us in the ass. The only way that I can see that not leading to, I don't know, pitchforks, and seriously bad consequences, people starving and things like that, is there's an absolute crush, crunch in the price of housing where the housing, the price of housing just goes absolutely through the floor because they remove all regulations on building, on building places to live. You might have in some places five or six people staying in apartments that used to be only rented by two or three. Why? Because... Um, that's the only way that they can afford to live in the, in the con conditions of the crunch. And there will be a period of an adjustment. We can, um, if house prices are allowed to fall back to the levels that they should be at market rate, perhaps people will have enough money and change lying around to, um, to survive. But without a massive decrease in the cost of living, there's other things we could do. We could open free free trade across the planet so that we can uh, import cheaper products from the poorest countries in the world. That would help, certainly help uh, lower the tax burden. That would help um, lower regulations so that um, more people can get jobs, even if they're low-paying jobs. Uh, that would all certainly help. But one thing definitely needs to be an uh, adjustment in the prices of houses so that, yeah, they, they, they need to at least half, if not more than that. Well, and it's not going to be nice for those people who invested in their own house. Well, this actually, um, I'm just going to bring into uh, competing currencies such as cryptocurrency, although as much as I'm a huge fan of it now that I'm more understanding of what to, well, cryptocurrencies are just based on blockchain and a blockchain is basically to make it as simple as possible it's just basically a ledger and it's not a ledger that's held in one particular like a bank or you know an institution or you know a market regulator that has all this stuff on file this is everybody that uses cryptocurrencies and the underlying technology of blockchain has a copy of that ledger my thing is as far as fiat, when i say economic collapse i am i'm a realist as far as that goes as long as central banks can keep, and the governments, they work together, can keep tricking people into believing this stuff. I believe through the fiat currency, the, the, you know, the never-ending credit card, I think that they can manipulate, they, they can keep this going for decades and, and even much longer, okay? The only thing, because there's a lot of industrial investors and people that would be unwilling because they will lose out as well from, because... The private sector, the, the lowly people no longer have the capacity, you know, to withdraw your friends funds because I don't think many people have a whole lot of money in savings accounts anymore. Like, so there's, it's not like back, you know, during the twenties and thirties where you could just withdraw and the, the banks would collapse because now, well, basically that's what happened in 2008 to a certain degree, but because they now can use that central planning model, there's no, med no well, pr past or post-1971, there's no longer any tie to any commodities such as fiat currencies, or I mean such as gold, is I think they can keep this going indefinitely, and that's why they pegged this thing at a 2%, so death by a thousand cuts. If the people only, if the people only suffer 2% every year, they're not incentivized to rail against them because, because, hey, I'm only getting a little cut. I'm still living, hey, right? So that to me, the only way that this can happen other than like short of like the big big industrial investors they're the ones that ha truly have the ability to affect the market right but other than them doing the right thing and all of a sudden become moral actors but that's the thing a lot of them probably would wish to be moral actors but they function in a system that being a moral actor is like shooting yourself in the foot in a corrupt system so 
like I say, the incentives are the incentives are so destroyed now that the only thing that you can do, okay, the only th only way we'll ever get to the point where we'll be able to pivot away from this properly without a full-on revolution or a lot of massive and economic pain and hardship are through these cryptocurrencies where people can, like, I'll just use myself for a perfect example. If I started a business tomorrow and we get to the point where some of these cryptocurrencies are, have gotten to the point where they're, at least as stable enough or as stable as they can be so that you can place a value um, that's at least correlated to what people would expect, right? And in the natural market environment that we would expect now. Like, so if you're trying to sell, barter, trade, or people have an, a certain expectation. If we can pivot away from that, so if the market actually crashed, how you could do that is, well, you could go back to the tulips or the tally sticks or what, but if people figure out a way that you can still remain a productive person in society, still provide your valuable goods and services or commodities to people, but be able to use a, an alternative medium of exchange and a measure and a retention of that value. I think that is ultimately the only way that we will be able to do it without a violent or, you know, like a hard economic depression that, that really does. If, if you go, if, cause I, well, as as soft as you can get, it's it's that's the thing. It's go, it's not going to be a complete soft landing because there's going to be some disruptions. There's there's going to be some hard pains and and people are going to suffer economically and socially. The ones, but 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 particularly the ones. To me, the thing should be is allow competition the, the number one thing I look at it is as long as there, I'm not a I, I've I'm not a big and like I'm not into. Bitcoin in particular, I recognize that some of these platforms can be used um, for other nefarious means as well. But my thing is just allow competition so that people have the capacity. That to me, that's the thing. Yeah, at least if you have the capacity, you know, if you could go to your boss right tomorrow and say, you, if you pay me in a cryptocurrency, I'll accept and assume, you know, whatever that consequence or result that is. But if you could get enough people, then that would automatically send a message without have to, you know, show up at the doorstep of the parliament with a armed militia you, you just you can send a message in a more peaceful way and saying we're just not going to play your game no more right back to the incentive and if you've ever worked like whether you're an employee or an employer because uh, i've known many people not just people in my family but friends neighbors you know others that have worked in these environments where it's mandated minimum wages and if you've ever been there and witnessed it in in with real world experience, with firsthand knowledge, you'll see. Let's say you have 20 employees in, in a particular business and they're all being paid the exact same mandated minimum wage. Well, you would know intrinsically and instinctively just by sheer fact of working in that environment that, wait a minute, out of those 20 people, there's probably only two, three, I don't know, let's just stretch it out, maybe four or five of them. You know, so a, qu a quarter at best, but usually it might be even just as low as 10% that are actually maybe up to f doing 50% or half of the work are, are, being, are, are being productive to the point that that business could really uh, sustain itself with a quarter of the workforce because of their efficiencies. But because of this, this thing where it's just all about getting as many people into the workforce as possible, well, they've created this mandated minimum wage, but you've destroyed the incentive. Because I've seen people, for example, a uh, place a friend of mine worked, where there were uh, three girls. It was a, a racing performance shop for motorcycles, ATVs. And I would see three whenever I'd go, go around there. You'd see three of them that would be hiding off into the corner, actually not doing a damn thing, not doing it, just kind of keeping it low key, hiding, you know, behind the the clothes over there and talking, and and they're not providing anything for hours and hours and hours and hours to that business by sheer fact that there were other people that were assuming and picking up that role, that task, that responsibility. So it, what I recognize instinctively is they're, they're destroying the incentive because the people that are doing all the hard work, but, but if you watch how that plays out in time or with, once again, unions involved, you'll see that the people that are the most productive, innovative, creative, they, their ambition over time 
Not all, there's exceptions to the rule, but a lot of them you'll see their ambition will keep gradually decreasing and constantly decreasing to the point because they wreck because they look out and they say, Why am I doing all the work and I'm not being I'm not being rewarded for it because my boss won't pay any more because we're considered, I don't know, let's I don't know, floor personnel is the term that they describe for that particular portion of the business. Well, all the floor personnel gets paid the same. So where's the incentive for someone to put in a little bit more ambition, a little bit more hard work, maybe be kinder to the, uh, the customers, maybe step a little bit above and beyond outside of your normal duties to, to uh, maybe incentivize customers to want to come back. There's, it, like I say, it's destruction of all that because they're not being rewarded for it. If we go back to anything even remotely resembling meritocracy, and I mean, like I say, there you can find areas that maybe that might not work, although I, I, I can't figure it out. I've tried myself because people say healthcare this or certain things. Oh, they're so important you can't. I just don't know. I've never heard anyone give me an actual valid excuse or argument where there's nowhere in the economy, nowhere where you can provide a product or a service where it doesn't benefit everybody, not just the providers, but the, the consumers where there's not, not just a cost benefit, but there's a moral benefit. There's an incentive for doing your job properly and elevating to the point where you're not just more successful for yourself, but you're showing other people because they'll strive to do that yourself. Like if you, if you were working in a place and the guy that was working the hardest was making more money, right? So instead of like in, in Ontario, they're at what, $14 now minimum wage. If, if instead of this mandated minimum wage, if the person was rewarded for meritocracy, if the, if the person that was working the hardest were getting paid 20 bucks an hour, then that's an automatic incentive that the people on the rest of that pay scale is like, hey, I'd like to make 20 bucks an hour. I wonder how I wonder how I could do that. Oh, if I just work harder, if I just become more productive, right? So, like I say, once again, it goes all the way back to our original thing that we were discussing is incentives and governments destroy, well, the big gigantic gun in the room, it destroys incentives.